from Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. The one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine is fast approaching. The Ukrainian region of Zaporizhia has been a battleground for months. Now it's the target of Russia's newest offensive, and fighting there could be about to get a lot worse. The Russians could mount a massive offensive once the spring comes. That's when Ukrainian forces are readying a defence, but the war effort in this part of southeastern Ukraine involves more than fighting back on the front lines. In the beginning of the war, I remember many people, they would uh, write, like, maybe it's a bad nightmare, I want to wake up. Dr Natalia Mosul is a psychologist, and for the past year, she's been working with people who've seen the worst of the war. And, you know, uh, they always say that first you lose the feeling of time, and it's actually true. Natalia specialises in therapy for children and families, and the stories that she's hearing from them now are unlike anything that she's heard before. This other girl, they were playing, and she stayed there, and she was killed. And so now this girl, she is asking, where is my friend? Mother says, I can't say what happened to her. But there's a tool that psychologists like Natalia are turning to, trauma-focused cognitive behavioural therapy. And experts from around the world, including Australia, are working with psychologists like Natalia to deliver the therapy across Ukraine. Today, Dr Natalia Mosul from the National University of Zaporizhia on the challenges of offering psychological support when the war is still raging around you. It's Tuesday, January 24. To begin with, could you just introduce yourself? Uh, okay, so my name is Natalia Mosul, and uh, I am a psychologist, and uh, I uh, work uh, with family and children mostly, and I live in Zaporizhia, Ukraine. And so what is it like right now in Zaporizhia, where you live? So now in Zaporizhia, it's like uh, 35 kilometers uh, from actually where is fighting going. That's not, that's very close, 35 kilometers. That's not far. Yes, actually it is, yeah. And we are one of the regions where we always have um, like warnings and we have fighting and actually 70% of our region is under occupation. So actually, it's uh, one of the regions where we have very, um, very many difficulties, I would say. So ordinarily, like today, uh, I have a child and she had her classes. And so the warning um, came and they said, oh, OK, the warning, we hope uh, no bombing. So, you know. Uh, so the, the warning was a, a warning for bombs. That's what the warning was. Yes, mm-hmm. we have the special program, and if we um, like, we have uh, some uh, threaten, then we have this warning, and um, usually it will stop the education process, like at schools uh, or in the universities. Yeah, but it became the part of the regular life. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. So it's your regular life, but it's also a war. So you're doing your work and taking children to school, but. On any given day, you're in danger because there could be a bombing. Yes. And actually, you know, uh, just recently we have a very a good text from one of the famous uh, soldiers of Ukraine, but he is also a blogger. And he really said that everyone who stayed knows that every day you can die 
just recently we had a bombing and the apartment in the city Dnipro was destroyed with uh, 1,000 uh, apartments and many families, they were just killed and it was just the weekend, you know. So actually, anytime you can be killed, actually. So it's just the part of the life that you know that it can happen. Or maybe not. And you leave. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. just knowing that. So you're a psychologist trying to do your work in a war zone. So what are the challenges of that, of trying to provide care right now? And and how are you and your colleagues trying to do that? Yes. uh, So mostly uh, it would be online work for now because it's not really safe uh, to have uh, like personal meetings for now in this region, for example. Yeah. And of course, one of the rules that you should need to deal with trauma when you have the safe settings. And for many people, they are still in a very unsafe situation. But again, you have these uh, more requests for psychological assistance and work. So, for example, many, many psychologists, they work as a volunteers uh, or for some professional platforms. And so do I. I work uh, as a volunteer. I do some volunteering. And I also work for the all-Ukrainian platform where we help to families and children. And so many of them are related to trauma. Mm. I suppose the difficulty here, though, is that this isn't all in the past. You're trying to help people with the trauma of, of what's happened to them in the past year, but you're you're trying to do that while they're still in danger and the thing that is traumatising them, which is the war itself, that isn't over. So does that make things very difficult? Uh, actually, yes. And I do remember in the beginning of the war, when we, um, you know, have uh, little understanding about um, that it can uh, go for over for a year. And so we had many like uh, counseling from a psychologist uh, from uh, Israel, America, Australia. And one of their main uh, like ideas was that you need to help when you in safe settings. Uh, but it's not possible. And so, yes, we try to do uh, uh, our best to support because you need to deal with the trauma you have now. And so, yes, it is a problem. And sometimes even when I have consultation, you know, and you have bombing or heavy sounds, and I understand it, it may be, you know, like difficult as well. So people, there's there's bombings happening around people as you're in the counselling session with them? Sometimes, yes. And you never know, actually, uh, where it can happen. So it's kind of unpredictable situation. So people try to do their best, Mm. but sometimes it happens. Yeah. So you can just have the consultation and then you have this sound and then you uh, hopefully, yeah, you stay and you calm down and then you go further again. It's just their, their life uh, we have now. So it's the part of the ordinary life. We'll be back in a moment. As a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash 
newsletters. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Natalia, you've been working as a psychologist trying to help people, children in particular, who are living with the trauma of the ongoing war in Ukraine. What stories are you hearing from the people who you're talking to, from the children? Okay, so this is a story of a six-year-old girl and she was you know, just smiling and uh, playing as a digital kid. And you would never imagine uh, that she survived through many, like, difficult uh, situations. And then I spoke to her mother, for example, and she told that they spent, like, over two weeks uh, in the basement uh, near Irpeny. This is a very famous uh, place where the butcher, uh, many, many people were killed there. And actually, uh, then uh, the story was that uh, the father uh, of this family, he decided uh, to try to move, yeah, to run from that place, and they succeeded. Actually, they said it was very difficult because uh, they were traveling through their Russian armies, and they saw all the guns and the weapons, and it was with, like bombing. But they mm, actually uh, went to other country. And uh, their father, he uh, decided to help to those neighbors who were there. He came back. He was killed. They never saw him again. And so now this girl, she's so bright, but she lost her father. And so uh, when I was working with this girl, actually, uh, they found the body of their uh, father and uh, they had a funeral. It was like six months after he, he was killed. But uh, at least uh, they had the opportunity to have a special ceremony and to say goodbye to him. Mm. And that story, you said that happened in Butcher, and we know that things that happened in Butcher were terrible. There were mass killings of Ukrainians yeah. during the Russian occupation there, and, and there was torture, there's evidence of war crimes. So to witness those types of things, how do you help a person process that? You know, it's very important just to give the opportunity to talk about that because sometimes uh, people would say, oh, we don't need to talk. We don't want to talk. Yeah, why Why should I? And actually many people, they saw um, things very difficult Yeah, about killing, about uh, um, actually their personal story, about starving, about losing everything. So uh, just to hear that, it would be also helpful. And, you know, it's very important also that this story should be told in the settings, that professional settings, I would say. Because if the person can tell these stories to other people and those would be unprepared, it can also traumatize them. Mm. And, Natalia, is it possible, do you think, for a whole country to heal from the trauma of a war? Is it truly possible for that to happen in Ukraine, given 
the horror of some of what has happened, like what happened in Bucha and, and what continues to happen, the, the ongoing fighting, the ongoing bombings? Mm-hmm. You know, I think, like, for example, I have many friends, uh, they are not in Ukraine now, but uh, they were in the beginning of the war and they would say, how can you stay there? It's impossible. You have all this situation. Uh, so I would say, yes, many people, they do have resilience. But they are not victims. They, I hope, they will be survivors and they would feel that. And also, we had the previous experience of the war. For example, my grandmother, grandfather, all of them, they survived through the war. And actually, I remember when I was a kid, there were so many stories how they survived. And of course, we hope that there never would be something like war in our time. But again, we could see their strengths as well. And, you know, we always thought that they are much stronger compared to us because uh, they did survive. So I think, um, yeah, it uh, really helps that there are many, many platforms and actually many international help in order to provide assistance right now. It's very necessary. Mm. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because the world is sending weapons to Ukraine at the moment to help in the resistance. But how important is it for psychological care to be available for Ukraine and for this kind of therapy to get international support? Uh, you know, we always say that we have different like front lines and psychological, uh, what we call front line is very important as well because uh, we're not prepared for that, you know, and uh, actually I am sure that we don't have enough professionals for now because uh, there is a huge need. So I just want to say that it's very helpful to have these tools and to have this support and supervision in order to provide the best and qualified professional support and counseling and assistance. Mm. And I suppose there is really no end in sight is there for how long this kind of help and and the work that you're doing will be needed and how much longer the war might go on for. So what are your hopes for the future? Uh, You know, it's just, uh, we all hope that it will will be finished. But again, uh, you need to deal with the issues that you have. And now in Ukraine, the main task of the psychologist, I believe, is to help. And also, I also work with students. And I would say many students, they said that this situation helped me to understand that I want to be in the profession and I want to be a good professional. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, it, it definitely checked your value system, you know. It helps to understand what is more important and what price you're ready to pay for some things. Mm-hmm. Well, Natalia, thank you so much for talking to me about all of this today. Thank you for asking because I always believe, you know, that stories are very important. So thank you and all the best. You can read more about Dr. Natalia Mosul and her work in Jane Caro's article, Treating Trauma in Ukraine's Children, in the latest edition of the Saturday paper. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, The Saturday Paper is essential reading for everybody. 
For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive the Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. Also in the news today, 10 people were shot dead during a mass shooting at a Lunar New Year celebration in Monterey Park near Los Angeles. A further 10 people were injured when the shooter, a 72-year-old man, opened fire in a ballroom dance studio. The shooter was later found dead, reportedly of self-inflicted gunshot wounds. Police have not confirmed a motive for the attack, which took place in a majority Asian-American community. And former Education Minister Chris Hipkins will be the next Prime Minister of New Zealand. Hipkins won the Labor leadership uncontested after Jacinda Ardern's surprise resignation last week. Hipkins will stand for re-election later this year alongside new Deputy Prime Minister Carmel Cepoloni, the first Pacifica person to hold the role. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.